Sleepwalker is the latest film from director Elliot Lester. Troubled by bouts of sleepwalking and disturbing nightmares, graduate student Sarah Foster goes to her university sleep research center for help. When she wakes up after her first night of being monitored, the world she lives in seems to have changed in subtle Twilight Zone-esque ways. In fact, every time she goes to sleep now, she wakes up in a slightly different version of her world. With the help of her sleep researcher, Dr. Scott White, she tries to work her way back into the reality she started in. But when they finally succeed, it's revealed that Sarah's world is not what she thought at all. Today, my guest is one of the stars of Sleepwalker, Richard Armitage. Tonight, we talk about his work on that film, as well as his work as Thor and Oakenshield in the Hobbit films, as John Proctor in The Crucible, and his upcoming films, Ocean's 8 and the Julie Delpy-directed film, My Zoe. Sleepwalker is now available on Digital HD and On Demand. Jonathan, please, please. Jonathan, Jonathan! How is your sleep? Not good. I've been walking in my sleep, and I have nightmares. Usually there's a man. I can't see him, but I know he wants to hurt me, and I can't get away. Do the same dreams repeat? Well, it's always the same man. like to do is have you stay here for a few nights so we can build the profile of your sleep life. We will know when you're dreaming and we'll also have someone watching you throughout the night. I can't leave. Of course you can. But only when you're awake. coming into to New York. It feels like that anyway. So <laughs> nice to be indoors today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but thank you for taking time to discuss, to discuss Sleepwalker. I, I really do appreciate it. I really enjoyed the film. Um, oh, great. Thanks. But, I, but before I went into that, I saw something else that you were doing that actually kind of really piqued my interest, and that was that you did a reading of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde for Audible. How did that come together? Um, I've, I've done quite a lot of work with Audible over the years, and um, you know, whenever they throw something at me, I, I, I find it very hard to say no because I love the way that they present the work and the time that it takes and the producers that they use. And um, they came to me with this for, as a Halloween special, and I'd never read the book before, but um, so I was really in, intrigued to find out what the real story was. And, and the thing that really struck me about it was that it, it feels like medical documents from a from a, a psychologist or a doctor in, in its form. Um, so there was a sort of heightened sense of reality, even though it's a, a fictional piece by um, Robert Louis Stevenson. I, I was just, I really, really enjoyed it. It was, it was great. It was really interesting to 
to sort of find a voice for that kind of medical journal style. And that was actually exactly what I wanted to ask you about because it is such an unusual style, the way that book's put together. Um, so for whatever reason, there can be things that sound fine in our heads when we're reading them, but when it comes time to actually say it to them out loud or perform them, um, it can be come out totally different. Was there any part of the book or any passages that stood out as particularly challenging? You know, it, it, it took me by surprise because I didn't realize um, when I was reading it with my eyes that, that the very final uh, document is actually – from um, Dr. Jekyll himself, uh, so it's very much a first-person account of uh, of what happened in, in the form of I did this and I did that, and I found that to be interesting because you have to, from every other perspective, it's always observed, um, and it's uh, obviously it contains the opinion of the person observing, whereas when it's in the first person, you really understand that the person writing this moment in time is talking about what's happening to him in real time. And that was really interesting. Hmm. And is that something where you like taking on those challenges of just looking through the stuff you've worked on in the past, you have quite a diverse career so far. And do you like the challenge of working with uh, existing properties that people know, like in the crucible or the Hobbit films, or even now with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, um, or do you like to be the one that introduces the world to the character? Um, I, I like a bit of both. I mean, I've always been inspired by literature. I think it's what drew me to acting in the first place because um, I was quite a bookish kid. So I was always kind of reading something. And, you know, your imagination is formed by the material you read, whether it's a very childish book or, you know, as I got older, more sophisticated material. And, and actually, in later life, I like um, I like nonfiction, but for some reason, my brain will always sort of fictionalize or create a world in which this this uh, story exists. And and so whatever medium I'm working in, whether it's a, an audio book or a TV show or a film, I you know, when I open the script to read it, I start to create the world in my head. And I think that's the first point of call for me is something, whether it's, um, whether it's something I'm interested in. I do find it hard to engage with something that I possibly wouldn't watch myself. I, I, I think... Uh, you know, the ground has to be fertile to, to draw an audience in. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you're not invested in the story, how could you expect anyone else to be? Um, yeah. And that's something that ties in perfectly with Sleepwalker because it's something that right away from that opening scene, it just grabs your attention and it pulls you in. You know that this isn't going to be a passive experience watching this film. Um, <laughs> is that how it read when you got the screenplay? It was a really difficult read, actually. Um, and I think, you know, this genre and this style of filmmaking is also quite a difficult thing for an audience to receive because it is so blurred with what's real and what's what's in the imagination or, or the dreams of the character that, you know, people like a very singular, strong, uh, logical narrative. And, and when you get into sort of the depths of uh, the subconscious, it can get, you can get lost in it a little bit. So it was it was quite hard to follow the script and I had to sort of label parts of the script, you know, this is, this is real, this is asleep. And then at one point I, I, I even realized that the character I was playing possibly didn't even exist. And that's a really difficult thing to wrap your head around that you're playing somebody that doesn't exist. It's just a figment of somebody's imagination or dream. But I liked that challenge. I liked the idea of that. Absolutely. And it's almost like a David Lynchian thing where that sort of dream logic, but taking on something like Memento, where every scene that you're watching is redefining what the film is about. 
Um, and so where your character has that atypical trajectory, um, where it's just your relationship to the story is constantly changing. So, I mean, you mentioned that you're having to take notes on this. Is that something that you're having to sit down with the director to kind of go through scene by scene with it and know exactly where you're supposed to be? A little bit, but I also like, um, I like to sort of just be free of, of my personal restraints. So I, I enjoyed the fact that I didn't always know where I was in the story or which part of the story it was. And I, I sort of threw myself into the hands of Elliot um, and actually Anna as well, because, you know, some days I turn up as one character and then the next day I turn up as another character. And, and <laughs> I just, it was nice to sort of just ride that wave with them. But it's interesting that you talk about Memento because there were so many things that I was inspired by that, that sort of led me to choose this project because, you know, I loved, obviously I love Memento, but another of my favorite films was, um, a film called La Doppia Ora, which was translated as The Double Hour by Giuseppe Capitondi. It's a similar idea of, of, a, of um, the internal workings of a mind of, a, of somebody that's possibly in, in a coma and you don't know what's, what's real and what's not. And uh, other psychological drama like, um, I think it's Hitchcock, but it's, it's a 1938 film called The Lady Vanishes. And I've got a feeling it's Hitchcock, but I'm, I'm not exactly that's sure. Hitchcock it is. Yep. It is, but it's just this idea of of a reality which changes, and as an audience, we start with the character, so we know what their reality is, and then when that when someone's trying to convince them that that it is something is not true, I mean, it, it couldn't be more topical for the time that we're in at the moment, where we know the truth, and then we're trying to be persuaded that that the opposite is true. It can be, it's incredibly frustrating, but in terms of drama, I think it's I think it's a really interesting. Uh, to play with. I hadn't even considered that part of it. My God, that, uh, you know, because I honestly, these types of films that go into the subconscious and sort of dream logic, those have always been ones that I've been attracted to where it's not all given to me on the first viewing necessarily, where I think I could probably explain the film or understand it in a very simple one sentence explanation. But then there's so, they're so much deeper and so much richer that you can go back to them time and time again. And it's usually something where they tend to divide audiences down the middle. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and you know, some, something like lost highway is something that I think a lot of people just flat out hate, but that's one that I don't even know that I understand it, but I go back to it every couple of years. Cause I feel like I need to just take another stab at it. Oh, that's a new one to me. I'll have to check that one out, but, but I know I agree with you. And I think you have to be really, really careful with the audience because I think the worst, the worst type of drama is the, 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 the and you know, they, they used to do it a lot in soap opera where they'd want to get rid of a character. So, so a character would wake up from a dream and everything had been a dream and then they could carry on with what was real. And it was a way of dispensing with all of the story. But, but it's so, I mean, it actually happened to me in a, in a drama um, that I did in the UK called Spooks, which um, the character turned out not to be the person that he said he was. And, but then, of course, all of the history that you've put in place from before suddenly becomes false and irrelevant. And I think that's, just be really careful that you don't betray an audience by making it too obscure. And, you know, one of the, one of the risks with Sleepwalker is that, you know, still allowing the audience to follow and to sort of not cheat them out of, out of the explanation at the end. And uh, hopefully we did that. Yeah. I think you, without ruining it um, to getting into anything overly specific with it, I think it walks the audience enough to it where they, there's a they're, they're satisfied by it. Um, I, I can just use my wife as an example because she really does hate ambiguity in film. It's something that yeah. I'm actually very <laughs> okay. attracted to, but and she yeah. enjoyed the film. So I think that if we're both satisfied, you definitely got the balance. 
Well, that's great. And the thing is, you know, one of my, one of the mantra that I have as, as an actor and a storyteller is that I always, I always put in place um, everything that's real and everything that exists, but you don't necessarily have to show everything or know everything. You, you, uh, it's often in, it's often useful that the character doesn't know a lot of the story and that the audience doesn't see a lot of the story or a lot of the um, the happenings in the in the piece. It's as if we the, the whole thing exists, but we only shine a light on portions of it. So you just get glimpses of something. And I think, you know, in the same way that music and art can also do the same thing, that at certain moments, different different themes come forward and the others remain in the shadows. I really, I think that's, that adds a really kind of rich texture to whatever piece you're working on. And, and this genre in particular was, was very much in that vein. And I, I, I remember Elliot referencing a kind of film noir, especially towards the end of the movie when this thunderstorm happens. And I really love, I've, I've always said I'm an actor, that I love working in the shadows and just kind of stepping into the light occasionally. And it, it, it really suited my, my personal taste. And I think that, that that actually works in a literal sense, but as the figurative aspect of that, that, yeah, you do need to just, if your film is nothing but exposition and you're laying that out the entire time, it can be very boring um, and frustrating to watch, actually. I think that's more frustrating um, to be to have my hand held through a story as opposed yes. to being left on my own to figure it out. Um, and, and I'm just wondering, as far as the sort of the world building that you do in your with the character, is that something that you try to do that on your own or is that something you expect to work through with the writer director uh, it depends on the taste of the of the writer directors um with elliot he was really into detail so he we both created a sort of playlist of music in in tandem with each other and so i listened to a lot of mika levy and max richter um all kinds of, of different textures of sound but he also was really interested in in smell as well for the other actors. So, so I, he said, go find a kind of fragrance or a smell that, that one character will wear. And then on the days when you're playing another character, don't wear it so that there's a, that you can give, you can offer the other actor a, a sort of almost like a sense memory that, that you're programming the other actor with, which I, I've never done that before. And I think it was really interesting to play with it. That's so brilliant. very subliminal. I've never... Oh, that, that I, because if you think about it in your own personal lives, there's certain, smells that you have that can be so evocative and so powerful and they can instantly pull you back. You know, I can think of, you know, bread cooking fresh in my mom's kitchen when I was a kid and those kinds of things. And if I right. Wisp of that, it just takes me back emotionally to that place. Yeah. I mean, and it's just, it's the same with um, taste. I mean, uh, I, I studied Proust in drama school and, and it, the essence of his story is all about the triggering of memory. And of course this piece is about dream and memory um, and all of that recall comes from s smell, taste, and sound. So music, um, you know, a fragrance on the body of somebody or, or what, the tea that you're tasting, uh, it's all connected to, to our, our deep subconscious. And, you, you know, as a person, you get, you, you'll just get hit with a sudden wa wa you know, wave of memory that's triggered by something. You don't always know what it is. It can somebody that just walks past you and, and you smell them. But um, it was really interesting to just offer that to, to Anna, um, so for the days in the hospital um, bed when she was waking up, it, it, you know, it, that, that character was more different to the guy that she was in a relationship with. So it was interesting. And can you talk a little bit more about your working relationship with her? How, how was it to sort of find these characters together? Because it's a, your relationship is definitely one of the more complex ones I would imagine that you've had to take on. 
we had such a good time working together. And actually, we, you know, all of my work was with her, whereas she worked with lots of other members of, of the cast. But I actually, I actually felt very protective towards her because I could see, you know, it was a, it was quite a, uh, a fragile character, and you know, um, she was leading the movie, so I could see, I could see, sense that there was a weight on her shoulders. So, you know, I, I guess I fell in line with Dr. Scott, and I started to feel, you know, uh, kind of paternal towards her. And then, of course, they're in a relationship together, and. And I didn't want her to get hurt, so I, you know, both of those things kind of moved between actor and character. But we sort of stayed in contact, and then, you know, uh, later on last year, she was doing a musical in, in um, off-Broadway, and I kind of went to see her, and then I ended up playing in the same space that she was in, in a play uh, that came in directly after, so she came to see me. And so it was really interesting how the, just the little thread of our, our relationship from the film kind of moved into real life, and... You know, I, I'm I'm somebody that I I really wish the best for her. I sort of want to champion her as an actor. So uh, it was really nice to to find that through through a film. And I mean, she's wonderful in the movie. And I mean, I think I probably first noticed her in Fruitvale Station, but she's yeah. you know in going back through it, and she's been doing some really the interesting work. And it's somebody that I think she could definitely become a huge name for sure. Yeah, definitely. And you know what? She's got an incredible singing voice. And I don't think she knew it until she tried to do it. And so I was like, wow, I didn't know you had that voice. And she said, neither did I. So, uh, yeah, she's, she's adventurous and really quite daring. You know, that was a, what she did in the film was, was really brave and daring in places. And are you a musical theater guy? I used to be, yeah, many years ago. It's how, it's how I found my way into theater. And, um, I, I realized I was kind of on the wrong track. So I went back to drama school and, and retrained in classical theater. And, um, but, it, but yeah, this, it, I touch on it occasionally and I and enjoy certain aspects of musical theater, but I, just, I think I'd rather watch someone else do it than, than do it myself. <laughs> and is there something from that? Uh, because that's so the skill set that you're working with is so much different from dramatic acting and then taking that, to television or film, those are completely different skill sets as well. I mean, they have some fundamental things that are consistent, but the actual, I think possibly the the more tactile side of things is different in those. Are, are there things that you have taken from that into the theater or, or, I'm sorry, into television or film? I guess not bumping into the furniture is one of them, um, <laughs> which is sort of an, act, an inside actor's joke. But, I, I, you know, it really made me realize that I just, and I still feel this, I'm just not much of a, a showman or a performer uh, I think I, I could probably enact the role of a showman or a performer as a character, but m my personality is not that um, not that uh, type of actor. And I realized that when I started working um, at a more different, at a different psychological level, and we did something in drama school called a private moment exercise. And I also used it when I did the crucible uh, in London. And it's really about, doing something uh, very personal and repetitive that, that people observe you doing. And I realized that that's where my heart lays in terms of drama. I'd rather be observed rather than uh, push or show something to an audience in a, in a kind of virtuoso way. So that's the difference for me in terms of, of style. Um, I think, and, and as a person, as, as an audience member, I'd rather observe somebody doing something than have something sort of thrown at me. 
And is that something where do you feel protected of your personal life and sort of who your personal identity is? Um, because, you know, acting can be very vulnerable, but if you're distancing yourself from the character in that way, is that something where you keep that arm's length distance? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, you always bring bits of yourself to the, to the roles that you're playing. And then sometimes bits of the role that you're playing kind of enter your own life. So um, I find myself now like, if I've played a character which has a very visual kind of identity that for a few weeks after I'll still keep dressing like that character and I can't shake it off because I've sort of fallen in love with those traits. Um, you know, even with something like something like Red Dragon um, that I played in, in Hannibal, I, you know, there was a, a, a glimmer of a moment where I actually considered getting that full body tattoo. Um, <laughs> I, just, I just found it fascinating and i loved having this kind of artwork uh on my back but but you know i was advised against it <laughs> for various <laughs> reasons but but there was a moment where i probably could have gone through with it um but but yeah you sort of pick these things up and it's one of the things i really enjoy about the work that i do is that you it's a you know the preparation is about uh laying all of the foundation work and almost tailoring the garment and then you get inside of it and you wear it for a while and then it starts to really fit you and feel comfortable to the point where you feel like you're not acting anymore but then getting rid of it afterwards can take a little bit of time but you know was there anything that you took from uh dr white into your sort of personal life afterwards um that's a good question i i i guess uh I guess the sense of, of uh, study was interesting in him. And actually, in, in, I've played a doctor once before in, in a much more kind of immediate medical drama. And I really, I really enjoyed sort of watching the, the size of your scene partner's pupils change shape during the scene. So this idea of someone that's studying another person, um, I, I think that really reflects me as a person more than, than any other character that... I think I am somebody that studies and waits and watches and listens before pitching in with my opinion. In fact, I can sometimes wait for for far too long, you know, to my own detriment. Um, it's very fashionable now to pitch in first with your ideas, but I think I probably brought that to the character and took it away with me, you know, this sense of observation. And this film is one of those ones that I I have a, a tough time with because I... I want everybody to go out and see it, but I know clearly this isn't a film that's going to necessarily work for everybody, but I want everybody to see it because I think it'll probably work for more people than might give it a chance. Um, who do you think this film should be? Who do you think should be seeing this? Gosh, that's a good question. Uh, I would probably say um, anyone that's interested in the subconscious. So, and that probably is most people. I think anyone that's ever had or has very, very vivid dreams and almost uh, some people remember them, some people don't, but, but that, that sense of frustration when you literally wake up from a dream and you're already forgetting it and you try to remember the immediacy of it and it just disappears from us. So, uh, uh, you know, anyone that's interested in that um, and, and, you know, I, I, I think as, a, as somebody that trades in imagination and I, you know, I crave those moments where I read a book and I'm transported just for that for that period where you're reading one chapter where you, where the rest of you know reality falls away. If you have that ability, because some people don't, some people, and, and I think people are losing the ability to completely disappear from the world for a second. Whether you know you can be sitting on a tube train 
reading a book and you can just forget where you are for a second. Anyone that's interested in that, I think this film will appeal to them because you're going to lose yourself a little bit in the maze that Elliot Lester created. You know, you actually touched on something earlier that resonated with me that I think ties back into that last part where you said, um, as you've grown older, you read more nonfiction and that seems to be where you end up spending your headspace more. Um, and I have to force myself to read fiction at this point because I'm automatically drawn to, you know, I, I just kind of feel like when I'm sitting down to read a book, I don't get to do it nearly as often as I would like. I need to, yeah. you know, kind of work out a little bit while I'm doing it. I need to make myself a better person through doing it. And I think I've lost some of that just losing myself in something. And I think we need to get back to that more as adults and you know, sort of realign ourselves with our imaginations. Yeah. And also, you know, there's this always this need to, you know, read what's the latest thing and what everyone else is reading. But, you know, sometimes it's nice to go back and reread a book that you've read before, sometimes many times before, because you re-enter the world that you've already created and you know what, you know, you know, all the doors and exits and, you know, that's how I was felt about Tolkien when I went to work on The Hobbit. I knew that I knew that book so well. I'd read it in school. I'd read it as a child. I revisited it as a 40-year-old. And I, I, it was like walking around rooms that I was very familiar with, but I just felt different about them because I was so much older. And I think that's also something that's not to be sniffed at, you know? No, of course not. And that has to be one of those you know, sort of surreal moments. I don't know if that's one of those kind of like pinching yourself things of your career when you're, you know, waking up and you're seeing your name on the call sheet and, you know, it's next to a character that you've been familiar with for probably more years than you haven't been familiar with this character. So what what was that like for you? I mean, it, it was and continues to be um, a kind of marvelous <laughs> floor in the universe. I, uh, you know, I just think, you know, how on earth did that happen? You know, the six foot two guy playing a dwarf. But, but yeah, and you know, at the same time that I'm marveling at it, I'm sort of feeling the responsibility of it because it was a, it was a sort of childhood character that I, you know, admired or was fascinated by, and, and I'm taking the responsibility for every other reader, and you know, realizing this character into life. And, um, you know, I, but I, I, I really cherish the opportunity to do that. And there are characters that I will play hopefully in the future that I've coveted for a long time, you know, historic figures that I, I look at and I think, Oh, I'd really like to play you. And, and maybe I get to do that one day. So, uh, yeah, I, I enjoy the responsibility, but I'm also, I remain in awe of them. You actually have one coming up that I, I think it's coming up. Um, I don't know that if you've shot it yet or not. Um, but you're doing Julie Delpy's next film, I believe my Zoe, is that correct? I am indeed. And, uh, it's really interesting because, uh, a lot of the time I, I have to be talked into projects because I I um I read them and more often than not I don't like them and then I, I have to be convinced about it and then I absolutely fall in love with it. But with Julie's piece I knew immediately that I was I wanted to do it. I loved the story so much. It was I don't know how many drafts she made of the script, but the script was and is it's almost perfect in, in the state that it's at now and we're not even in production, but it's just a fascinating piece to me. It's a subject which I have touched on um, right at the beginning of my career, and I won't give it away too much, but it's, it's, it's science, but it's, it's veering towards science fiction, um, but not in a kind of H.G. Wells kind of way, in a medical way. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a family drama, and it's a tragic story of a, of a couple that are pulling each other apart in a divorce, and, and then something happens to their child, and then, the, the story takes a, a really unusual course, but 
I'm I'm really excited to work with her and Daniel Brawl and Gemma Arterton and you know she's written it she's going to direct it which is amazing and you know she's found the the money and she's producing it herself she's like a little one woman film industry all of her own so I feel really privileged to be going to work with them. She's done some amazing work. She's one of those people that uh, it's pretty much anything that she attaches her name to. I will. I'm on board day one. So I'm yeah, yeah. I'm excited for that project for sure. She's got great taste, and you know her style of work and the, and her style of work as an actor, I think is fascinating. And one of the things that you know I talked to her about when we when we met over the, the the last few months was how do you how do you feel directing yourself? And she said. You know, I, I get so engrossed in the story, I forget to put myself in the movie. I forget to, to film myself because I'm so fascinated with with the story. But and, and I found that really, really delightful because clearly she has no vanity or narcissism. She's just a great storyteller. So I'm really excited about this project. And is that something that you would see yourself doing at some point? Would you want to go into directing and do you think you'd be able to direct yourself? Uh, I don't know whether I'd be able to direct myself. Uh, I wish that, you know, I wish I could find the intelligence to become a director. Um, <laughs> maybe I will. Maybe I will. Who knows? But it, but um, we'll, 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 we'll see. I mean, I think I'd have to become a writer as well at some point. But, but um, yeah. I think you've probably at this point been around enough sets and been around enough people to at the very least know what not to do. And that can be a pretty good. That's true. And to start with. yes, yes, I think I might, I might do, um, be in danger of it, a, a kind of indulgence because I love actors so much and I love watching what happens between two actors that I could just let it live on and on and on. And sometimes you, the director has to cut. Um, and but but less and less actually because we work on digital, you can play a scene and then let it live for a couple more minutes afterwards. But I, I might watch them for hours, <laughs> still be filming it. That's one of the disappointing things about uh, Robert Altman passing when he did. It seems like he would have been the type of director that would have just absolutely flourished in the digital age just with being able to – he seemed like somebody that just would let actors play for hours, and I couldn't imagine the stuff he could have pulled off if he would have just had pretty much limitless time. Yeah, well, that's the thing. And, and you know, at the moment it's, – it's, again, it's the frustrating thing as an actor is that you you kind of apply yourself to what you're given and what's on the page, but sometimes – with delay or repetition, something completely unexpected happens. And more often than not, a director has cut before that happens. And so, you know, uh, will, I mean, which is why it was great to work with Peter Jackson, because he really, he really didn't. He would let the scene run and run and run, and he'd, he'd discover things in the moment. But, uh, but sometimes time on television, for example, you know, you, you, get, you, you, call, you hear the word cut before you've actually, like, hit the moment where something unexpected happens. That's uh, that I would imagine that has to be one of the big challenges of working in television, just the schedule being so tight. Yeah, and you know, and I always kind of go into the to the project, and you know, one of the things that I, you know, say to myself and to the director and to my scene partners is, you know, I'm here because I want to, I want to find out what's not on the page, and I also want to surpass my own expectations and everybody else's, and you can only do that when you. You know, you allow yourself to to get the scene that you that, that you're given, and then look for something more, or wait for something more sometimes. And I I just want to say one kind of side thing here. I I feel bad because normally when I interview somebody, I always make sure that I've seen um, the the 
specific piece that they're working on twice just because I want to watch it once as an audience member and just let it wash over me then once a little bit more critically. And then I, I try to see other recent things. But you're so fucking busy that I couldn't catch up with all the stuff you've done. Just in this <laughs> <year>. so, <laughs> oh, um, thanks. That's yeah, all right. And, and, no, 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 no. And, and I was um, – it's something that I just – this has got me back on track to see Pilgrimage, which is something that I have been meaning to check out. And just you've had a hell of a year, and it's kind of all over the map with uh, Sleepwalker, Pilgrimage, Berlin Station, the TV show, and then the Castlevania series. It's just yeah. – I, I can't pin it down to like find the through line to all those things. What is it for you that attracts you to all these different projects? Just the the absolute variety of roles that I am lucky enough to kind of take on. I mean, I one of the reasons I loved Pilgrimage so much and jumped on board was just to play a character that that is uh, that speaks a foreign language and, and lives in a period you know which is so far away from modern reality and yet resonates with a with a kind of fascination with iconography. I just thought, oh, that's a really interesting idea, and you know. Um, the beginning of this year, I was, you know, on the set of Ocean's 8 playing playing a really kind of indulgent kind of art curator. And I thought, yeah, yeah, how do you, how do you kind of jump from one to the other? But it's, it's you know, it's one of the things that is so attractive about what I do. And also kind of frightening sometimes that you just don't know what's coming next. And you have to really open up your mind and your heart and be like, okay, let's see what the universe throws at me. And, and you know, be ready to jump on something that is like, ah, I've never done that before something really unusual so that's really what draws me to it and i've never really been driven by by money so um you know it can be the lowest budget but sometimes no pay but if the character is interesting and and you know i've never done it before i'll, I'll, I'll let myself go there because the riches you get from it are not financial they're, they're artistic and you're fortunate that you get to balance both of those and you can find interesting work on all all sides, it seems, because, you know, the stuff that you're doing on Hannibal, I mean, that that's was one of those shows that was just woefully underwatched here in the States. I, I thought it had a it had a clearly a very you know strong following. The people that yeah. watched it were very loyal to it. But my God, that was just a they were doing things on there that I couldn't believe they were getting away with, not only from just the sort of the shocking side of it, but from a story perspective that the, the stuff they were doing with that was beyond what I expected from that. Yeah, and a really like incredible artistic reach. You know, Brian Fuller's vision was so extraordinary, and you know, it's really it's a real privilege to go and work with somebody like that because you you have to get in pace with with that vision, and and it makes you think in a different way. And when you understand that someone is looking at detail in the way that he is, it makes you even more detailed because you know that it's going to be studied and appreciated and and absorbed into the into the material, but. You know, the subject matter was a really, really difficult one, um, but he made it somehow a kind of extraordinary artistic explosion. Uh, and I always said that I would, that I shy away from horror, but this was a, this was a character that I found fascinating and, and the writer found him fascinating as well. So, yeah, that was a real privilege to be part of. Well, I, I would honestly say that Sleepwalker, um, in a lot of ways, it, it, it plays a lot like a horror film does. Um but it just doesn't have the normal sort of the excessive violence or these other sort of uh, things that directors and writers use to shock an audience and to unnerve the audience. But I do feel like there's a design here that's supposed to make the 
audience very uncomfortable that's evocative of horror films, the great horror films. And so it's definitely a thriller, but it does have that horror, like a great horror element to it as well. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, I mean, it's it's interesting how, you know, the kind of material that comes forward in different periods of time, like horror is, is sort of top of the list at the moment, or genre, uh, what do they call it, elevated genre, which is kind of <laughs> arty horror. Uh, I don't know why we have a taste for it at the moment, but it, but but we do, and uh, you know I think a certain a certain level of discomfort in, in a in a film auditorium is is not you know is not something that that I I shy away from. You know I recently went to see um, Don't Look Now, which was playing in my local cinema. I haven't seen it on a big screen before, and um, I don't know whether you remember that movie with Donald Sutherland oh, and do. Judy Christie. Yes, yeah. but um, but I'd forgotten how you know. Horror doesn't necessarily have to be heads being decapitated and flying towards the camera in 3D. And what's in your mind is, is can, can be far more unsettling than, than what you actually see. And uh, I hope Sleepwalker kind of just taps into that to that uh, thing because we all have a subconscious, so it, there's nobody left out. You know, even children, because you know, children dream. They have little, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you do tap into that, and that's what the why the film really works for me. And I really do hope anybody that's listening to this will, you know, have, hopefully have stopped before they got this far into it and just go out and watch the movie because it's something that's wonderful that I think people should definitely be checking out. Thank you. That's that's a great thing to say. Well, th- thank you again for taking time out of your evening to do this. I, r- I really do appreciate it. And uh, best of luck. I'm seriously, I'm looking forward to my Zoe. And that's, you know, one of those ones that I can't wait to see. Um, whenever that comes out, I will be there day one for that because that's just, uh, yeah, top of the list for me right now. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Christopher. Really nice to talk to you. You as well. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your night. Take care. Bye. Big thanks to Guilty Pleasure, that's G-U-L-T-Y Pleasure, on Twitter, as well as F-A underscore 2406, and, oh God, I'm going to completely butcher this one, it's V-A-N-C-I-L-O-T-T-I, so is that V-Ancelotti? V-Ancelotti, and I'm sure I got that wrong, so my apologies. But thank you all for submitting questions for Richard tonight for the show. Um, I was planning on working them in and actually directly quoting you for these questions, but several of them he actually ended up answering before I had the chance to ask them. Um, The only one that was specifically asked uh, from that was the one from uh, F.A. underscore 246. So thanks again. You know I have a love A love for everyone I know And you know I have a drive To live I won't let go Well can you see It's opposition Comes rising up sometimes. That it's dreadful, and position comes blacking in my mind. 